apologize for stopping Bobby, but uh, that was a long passage to begin with, and I'm only going to uh, preach through verse 27. So um, I just want to add a word of um, blessing to the young people from the Grand Rapids area, Byron Center area. Uh, It's been great to have you with us. Uh, You seem like a great group of high schoolers. We wish God's blessing on your ministry this week at the Home for the Blind as you do work there. Um, Brad, my nephew, and his wife, Glenda, I want you to uh, feel free to um, bring your youth group to Owensboro anytime, even if you're on your way to Canada. Bring Bring them by, and we'll enjoy fellowship with them. Now, uh, last Lord's Day, which was not Palm Sunday, we heard a Palm Sunday sermon by Jonathan, because he led us through chapter 11, at least a large portion of it, concerning the triumphal entry of the Lord Jesus into Jerusalem, which he reminded us that in some ways really wasn't very triumphal. Those who... uh, cried out Hosanna, many of them probably within a few days cried out crucify. He rode on a donkey. Nothing big happened. The next day on Monday he cursed the fig tree and then proceeded to go into Jerusalem to, quote, cleanse the temple, which Jonathan said in a sense really was more of a cursing than a cleansing. And the cursing of the fig tree was designed by our Savior to be symbolic of the curse that was coming upon spiritually bankrupt Judaism. The temple itself was being cursed and before long would be destroyed. But this morning we come to what transpired on the rest of Tuesday, the day back toward Jerusalem when they saw the withered fig tree. Once again our Savior entered Jerusalem and He went to the temple for the third time And as he was teaching, according to Matthew and Luke, he was confronted by three different groups of hostile people, each of which desired not only to see Jesus arrested, but to kill him. But since they could not arrest him because of the people or kill him, they attempted repeatedly to discredit our Savior by undermining His character and His teaching with craftily designed questions. Before we look at them, however, I want to remind you of the big picture. I said a few weeks ago in Pastor Keith's Sunday School class that obsolescence was built into the Old Testament. Now that sounds like a theologically sort of deep statement. It just means that the things that were designed by God to be symbolic were also designed by Him to become obsolete. Everything that was symbolic was designed to become obsolete. And so, we shouldn't be surprised to see that national Israel gives way to spiritual Israel. The old covenant gives way to the new covenant. The old physical temple gives way to a new spiritual temple. The old priesthood is replaced with a new one. A second Moses, if you will, comes to lead a greater exodus. A second David comes to establish a more glorious kingdom. And it was a second Elijah who came to pave the way for this new Moses and new David. Who was this second Moses and David? It was God's final prophet to teach priests to atone and king to rule, all wrapped up in one in the person of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in our passage this morning, in a way more bold and more open than ever before, in the midst of hostile confrontation with the religious leaders who both feared and hated Jesus, Jesus makes His identity known more boldly, more open than ever before. It's been happening all along, but it was only seen by those who had eyes to see. And in our passage today, it becomes very clear by His own words. For the first time, He publicly presents Himself unmistakably as Israel's promised, long-awaited Messiah. And it happens 
through confrontation in the temple where he was asked three questions by three different groups of hostile people. Now, their words don't seem to be hostile. In fact, they seem to be, in some case, very flattering. But those who asked these questions were themselves hostile. They were evil, they were malicious, they were hateful. And they had such motives in questioning Christ. And when our Savior answered their questions in a way that completely frustrated their designs, you know what happened to them? They became even more hostile toward Him. Because His answers literally embarrassed and exposed the interrogators. Now this hostility has been building up for a long time. It started as early as chapter 3, and we saw it as recently as verse 18 of chapter 11. The chief priests and scribes heard it. They were seeking a way to destroy him, or they feared him because of all the crowd and so forth. So this hostility has been brewing, but now it's becoming very, very intense, and it's going to lead soon to our Lord's crucifixion. So let's look at these three groups and let's analyze their crafty questions. Group number one, you see them in verse 27. It's made up of chief priests, scribes, and elders. They came as members of the Sanhedrin. They were representing the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling body made up of 71 men. Their question was twofold. You see it there in verse 28. And it's a question that concerned authority. Notice, Bobby read it for us. By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do them? It was a sort of credentials question. It was a sort of, uh, by the way, where did you go to seminary? Uh, who was it that ordained you? But in essence, the spirit of their question was even worse. It was just who do you think you really are anyway? Where do you get off doing the things you've been doing? The These things that we read about in verse 28 probably have primary reference to the so-called cleansing of the temple. But it may have included more. It may have even included his being willing to ride into town while the crowd shouted Hosanna and so forth. But with regard to cleansing the temple, he did it, as we saw last week, with such confidence, with such resolution. No one dared to oppose him. And the crowd was astonished at his teaching, according to verse 18. Well, their questions were designed to put our Savior on what we call the horns of a dilemma. You see, the question of authority was one that they hoped would really embarrass him and expose him. Because, you see, if he answered and said, well, I really don't have any credentials, that would have undermined him. If he quickly said, God has ordained me to do this, he would have seemed to be blaspheming. But notice how Jesus answered their two questions. He did it with one of his own, and I emphasize the word one. Look at verse 29. Jesus says to them, I will ask you one question. You ask me two. I'm going to ask you one question. And notice the authoritative manner by which he proceeds. He says to them, not once, but twice, answer me. His question, in fact, is now putting them on the horns of a dilemma. It's a reversal. And he gave them only two options, as you saw. He said, basically, I'll answer your question if you tell me about the baptism of John. I just want to know, was it from God or was it from man? Was it divine or was it human? And they saw to the bottom of his two options very, very quickly. In essence, he was saying, without speaking these actual words to them, you know in your consciences where John got his authority. You know in your heart of hearts that John was 
really a prophet, just like the rest of the people know. And you know what he said about me. You know he said, after me comes a mightier than I, whose, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. You know he said that. You know that He calls me the Lamb of God. You have no doubt heard about the voice from heaven at my baptism where those who were present heard these words, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. In Him I am well pleased. You know why you are afraid to answer my from heaven or from man question. And so do I. I'm not saying Jesus said these things. I'm saying I think this is what they felt. In essence, Jesus was saying to them without using the words, you are lying. When you say we don't know. If you really don't know, your lack of knowledge, your lack of discernment, your lack of wisdom puts you in a position which really disqualifies you for talking to me about my authority. Because you prove yourselves to have no real authority. But, since you will not answer my question and tell the truth, you haven't earned the right to hear my answer. And since I have so easily stymied you, stymied just means uh, put to a complete stop, I've left you speechless so easily. You might just want to step back for a moment and contemplate where I got the wisdom to so easily leave you without an answer. Now again, I want to say, Jesus didn't say any of that. But in essence, the way he answered them argued that way. And I think it's quite likely that this thought process went through their minds as they reflected on their encounter with the Lord Jesus. And undoubtedly, they went away even more angry and more embarrassed and more frustrated. But the Lord has not finished His answer. He is now going to show them, by way of a parable, who they are and what they are really about. And so he does it with this parable found in chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. And again, here's a case where there shouldn't be any chapter division whatsoever. This is is an ongoing dialogue here. They're still at the temple. As soon as he's done telling them, I'm not going to answer your question now. You don't qualify for an answer. He says, but listen to this. I want to tell you a story. And so he goes into this, the fourth parable, and there are only four parables in the whole Gospel of Mark. And the first three are found in one chapter, chapter 4. And this is a parable that is easily understood. One reason we know it's easily understood is because these uh, men from the Sanhedrin got it. And they didn't hear a sermon on it. They got it real quickly, just by listening to the story. It's a parable about the history of Israel. It's a panorama of Israel's history from the Exodus to the destruction of Jerusalem. That's what it is. And it's easily understood by them because of a familiar passage in Isaiah chapter 5. And I'd like to ask you to go there with me just for a moment. And then we're going to come right back. Isaiah chapter 5. This isn't the only place in the Bible where God um, describes His relationship to Israel under the figure of a vine, of a grapevine. But it's strategic. Notice Isaiah 5 verses 1 through 4. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes. But it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done? Here is God complaining about unbelieving, unfaithful, rebellious, 
fruitless national Israel. And the representatives from the Sanhedrin to whom Jesus is telling the parable of our passage well understood Isaiah chapter 5. They knew about this analogy. And so here we have a, a simple parable. It's, it's a little bit different. Its focus is more on the rulers than on the nation. But you have a landowner who clearly is God. You have a vineyard, vineyard which is clearly Israel. You have tenants which are the religious leaders. You have servants who are the prophets of God. You have a beloved son. I was thankful that Bobby's heart became tender at that point. These men should have had their hearts broken at that point in the parable. We all should whenever we stop to think about God's only begotten, beloved Son. It was Christ. And the killing of this Son represents the crucifixion. And the destruction of the tenants represents the destruction of Jerusalem soon to come. And the giving it over to others represents the Gentiles and the church. It's an easily understood parable. It's a parable that demonstrates the grace of God toward His ancient people, providing them all that they needed. It's a parable that emphasizes the amazing patience of God with His nation. He sent prophet after prophet after prophet to call them to repentance so that they might enjoy His blessing, but they treated His prophets maliciously all through the Old Testament. Could I ask you to just notice one other passage that sort of summarizes the way Israel dealt with God's gracious messengers? Go to the end of 2 Chronicles, very end of it, chapter 36. 2 Chronicles 36. And notice with me just verse 16. Just verse 16, or 15. 15 and 16. 2 Chronicles 36.15 The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them, persistently, by His messengers, because He had compassion on His people and on His dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising His words, and scoffing at His prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against His people until there was no remedy. There is a capsulized statement concerning the general posture of the nation of Israel toward the servants that God sent. This is a picture of the tenants and the way they treated God's choice servants. I could show you other passages. I could show you the words of our Savior. I could show you the words of Stephen in Acts 7. But it all just proves the same thing. Unbelieving Israel treated the messengers of God with disdain and brutally and killed them. But God was not defeated. And even in our parable, you know, one could say, well, isn't this sad? Look how it ends. It ends in the a killing of his own beloved son. No, I'm sorry, that is not where it ends. Look at it again. Look at verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? And in Matthew's Gospel, it's clear that they answered the question and condemned themselves in their own answer. They were sort of caught off guard. Trying to catch him off guard with questions, he catches them off guard. Here it is as if Jesus said it. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants. The battle has not yet been lost. In fact, it's going to be won. And he will give the vineyard to others. And then our Savior goes right into quoting another well-known passage to these representatives from the Sanhedrin. I'm glad we sang today from Psalm 118 because these two verses are verses 22 and 23. And Jesus quotes this messianic psalm. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in our eyes. I submit to you, dear people of God, that the others is us. 
The others are the Gentiles. The others is the church. And Jesus is helping them understand this. I'm, I'm going to ask you again to turn to Matthew 21 for just a moment. And I thank you for uh, being patient to turn to so many passages. We are trying to interpret Scripture with Scripture. And there's a very uh, a key expression here in chapter 21 where we have Matthew's account of the same parable. But I want you to notice a key word. And you find it in verse 43. Matthew 21:43 Therefore says Jesus I tell you the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people ethne which also may be translated nation and is translated nation in several of your bibles We're going to take the kingdom away from you Israel and we're going to give it to another nation What is that other nation that other nation is the spiritual Israel of which we are a part if we are true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, he didn't lose the, he didn't lose the battle. He is going to be victorious. He's still answering the question of authority by showing them in this parable who he is. It was obvious to them that he was saying, I am the son of the owner, and I know what you are about to do. He's showing them also who they are. He's showing them in essence that they are wicked and that they are unbelieving and rebellious and greedy tenants who want power and possession and ownership. Why didn't these religious leaders like Jesus? Because they were losing their influence. That's why. And they couldn't stand that. He's also showing them in this parable what he knows they're going to do with him. It's a prophecy of his own crucifixion. He's showing them what God is going to do to them. They're going to be destroyed. He's showing them what God is going to do to him. He's going to be exalted. Yes, he is the stone that is being rejected. You see, he's changing the analogies. In the parable, he is the son of the owner, and they are tenants. But in quoting Psalm 118, this messianic psalm, they are the builders. And they're the builders who look at this stone, and for whatever reasons, they don't like it. It is, in fact, a precious stone. It is, in fact, the best stone. It is, in fact, the one designed to be the cornerstone. But they reject it. And what happens? The stone that is rejected by the builders becomes the cornerstone. And this is precious and marvelous in our eyes because it is the work of God. He's telling them all of this. And I reiterate, dear people, they got it. They got it. I hope it's as clear to you as it was clear to them. He's talking to them about what's happening. He's talking to them about the history of Israel, coming right up to them as its spiritual leaders. And He's telling them what they're going to do to Him, and what God is going to do to them, and what God is going to do for us. Because we are the other people. We are that nation. And I'm going to ask you just to turn to 1 Peter 2 in this regard. And notice how Peter quotes this very psalm. So does Peter in a sermon in Acts chapter 4, but just now we'll look at what we find in 1 Peter chapter 2. Notice verses 4 and following, 1 Peter 2. As you come to Him, that's the Lord, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Jonathan was reminding us last week, there is a new temple. It's a temple that we can have a part in building through our prayers. We gather tonight. This becomes a house of prayer. Boiler room, yes. But in Jesus' words, a house of prayer. And tonight we pray for the nations, and as we pray for the nations, and God hears our prayers... The temple is being built, and it is a holy. It is filled with a holy priesthood. Notice to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scriptures. Behold, I, God speaking, am laying in Zion a stone, a corner stone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in Him, it's a person, will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
They hate that. But they can't change reality. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. They were destined to stumble for disobedience. But, now look, but you, you my readers, says Peter, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Now notice these next three words. A holy nation. A people for His own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Dear people, we are that holy nation. And as you listen to me this morning, you're either a citizen of it or you're not a citizen of it. And there's no place in between. But if you are looking to Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, you have been made a citizen of that holy nation. So, in this parable, back to Mark 12 now, Jesus is showing an exclusion and an inclusion. The tenants, in trying to possess the vineyard, actually find themselves dispossessed, literally destroyed. Ethnic Israel is set aside. God graciously turns to the Gentiles. The old nation is eclipsed by a new and holy nation. And that's what they understood, and they hated it. Look at their reaction. Verse 12, And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. They couldn't arrest him, and they couldn't kill him, because he wasn't ready to lay his life down. And when he's ready, they will be able to do it. But it's not time yet. Well, I have to hurry very quickly to group two, and I'm going to handle group two and group three in a much briefer period of time. Group two, we find them in verses 13 through 17. Who are they? Well, there's some Pharisees and some Herodians. That's a strange combination. These are strange bedfellows because the Pharisees were very religious and the Herodians were quite secular. But notice, they too were sent. Who sent them? We can't say for sure, but it's very likely that the Sanhedrin sent them. Since their last effort ended in failure, they're going to try again. And their question also was designed to put our Lord on the horns of a dilemma. It was a sort of an ethical slash theological political question. Their words were nauseatingly sweet. Their words were sickeningly sweet. But Jesus saw through it. He saw it as hypocrisy. Notice in verse 14, they come to him. Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances. Boy, if I was Jesus right then, I'd have said, then what are you trying to do? <laughs> what are you trying to do? Your words are trying to sway me. Our Lord is so patient, but in his own way, he unmasked them. So their words are sweet, but they're hypocritical. Their motives are sour. What did they want to do? Look at verse 13. They wanted to trap him. That's why I say they're hostile. They wanted to put him to the test, according to verse 15. He says, why are you putting me to the test? Now, what's the heart of this thing? Well, think about it. Here's Judea under the Roman rule. The Jews don't like it, but they have to pay taxes to Caesar. And so the Pharisees... They like this question because they're hoping that Jesus will say, yes, it's good to pay taxes to Caesar, because that will make him unpopular with the people. The Herodians want him to say yes, or they want him to say no for a different reason. They want him to appear as an insurrectionist. So it seems like either the Pharisees or the Herodians are going to end up happy about this dilemma that they're trying to present to the Lord Jesus Christ. Not so. Not so. It did seem like a lose-lose situation for our Savior, but there's never a lose-lose situation for our Savior because He's God. Watch what our omniscient and wise Savior did. Listen to his answer. The spirit of their question was, so, how are you going to get out of this ethical, theological, political dilemma? We got you now. 
Listen to his answer. It's brilliant. He says, bring me a denarius. That was a common coin. It actually amounted to a day's wages. And I don't sense at all from our passage that they had to wait and who is anybody ever going to be able to get one? I hope we can get one of these because I want to make an illustration. No, probably a Pharisee reaches down in his pocket, so to speak, and pulls out a denarius. And in a sense, he's got them already. It's like, oh, I see. You already are a part of this whole system. You apparently don't have a trouble, don't have problems with paying tribute to Caesar because you use tribute from Caesar. He didn't say that. You have to wonder if they felt any embarrassment about that. But he looks at the coin and says to them, uh, whose image is forged on this coin? And they say, Caesar's. At that time, it was Tiberius. It was a very worshipful coin, worshiping the Caesar. And he says, you're right. And though he does not say this, in essence, I think it could be that he's sort of asking them to wonder And who forged the image in you? I know those words aren't there. But what he says makes it a plausible thought. The answer to that question is God. Okay. So Jesus says, then how about this for a sensible answer? Render to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar and render to God the things that belong to God. You belong to God. You Pharisees don't want to render to God, neither do you Herodians, because you're very secular. You Herodians are pretty good at rendering to Caesar, but not to God. You Pharisees are pretty good at rendering to God, at least you think you are, but not to Caesar. It's not wrong to render to Caesar what is due to Caesar. God has ordained government. You're setting up what you think is a dilemma, that Christians can't live in, a, in an ungodly government or under an ungodly government. Not true. They rarely live in, the, in a Christian and under a Christian government. Rarely. And rarely does it cause conflict for us. It's burdensome, but our government doesn't require us to sin, at least not our government. If it did, we know how we would have to respond. We would join the apostles and say, we must obey God and not men. But as long as, God is not, as long as the government isn't commanding us to sin, we are to render to the government what belongs to the government, including taxes. And the government doesn't have to be Christian in order for us to do that. These are two parallel lines, and we have to render submission and obedience to both. Obviously, one is ultimate, and the other one is not. But as long as the other one is not commanding us to do what is sinful, we are to obey it. That's what the Bible teaches. Christians should be the best citizens of any nation. And so our Lord just simply solves the problem by telling them, well, render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and render to God what belongs to God. And they're stymied. In fact, they're just like, wow, man, this is terrible. We're not getting anywhere. No one's getting anywhere. He's amazing. He is amazing. And now we come to the third group, the Sadducees. This was an aristocratic group of non-supernaturalists. They didn't believe in spirits, angels, resurrection, and they believed that only the Pentateuch was authoritative, not like the Pharisees. The Pharisees had a wider, um, they had a bigger Bible, let me put it that way. And their question was a sort of a theological, philosophical question. They, too, wanted to discredit Jesus. They wanted to undermine his theology. They formulated a kind of trick question of their own. And if, if he gave the wrong answer, it would be a victory not only over him, but it would also be a victory over the Pharisees, because the Pharisees do believe in resurrection. And so what they do is they conjure up this trick question, which is designed by them to show the folly of anybody believing in the possibility of resurrection. They built it on a dilemma that they thought they could create required by the Old Testament. And we're told what it is. It's, it's technically, it's called the Leverate Law. Uh, it's found in Deuteronomy chapter 25. It was a good law. It was designed to help um, a woman who lost her husband but was not able to give birth to a son to be able to keep the property 
and to continue to belong to the community rightfully. And so if um, a man died and she, they had no male sons and he had a brother, his brother was to become her husband as well so that perhaps they would be able to carry on the family name. And so they conjure up this, this wild, you know, virtually impossible situation. I mean, mathematically, this is going to really be something. I was thinking about it as Bobby was reading it. I don't want to be funny where I should be reverent. But, you know, somewhere along the line, it's getting kind of scary to marry this woman. <laughs> but if I'm number eight, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not marrying her. This, this lady's deadly. Everybody dies shortly after they marry her. Uh, but, but it was a good law. It was designed by God. And so they take this principle and they push it to a wild imaginary uh, situation, scenario, and they say, So, Mr. Jesus... What are you going to do now with your doctrine of resurrection? Pretty ridiculous, isn't it, to hold to that idea? Who's, who's going to be your real husband? Number one, number four, huh? number seven. Who's going to be your husband? Well, again, if, if Jesus accepted their premise, which he didn't, their premise was that after uh, we die and after the resurrection... Uh, heaven and eternity is going to be just like it is on earth. We're going to still be getting married and having children and so forth. If he did, I think he probably would have just said, number one, it's number one. It's the first husband. That was the simple answer. But he doesn't do that. He shows that their premise is wrong, but his immediate response to them is that, well, look what his words are. He says to them in verse 24, is this not the reason you are wrong? Okay, first of all, guys, you're wrong. He's wrong, period. And you're wrong on two accounts. You don't know the Scriptures. Isn't that sad? Sadducees, you should know your Bible. You only believe in five books. You ought to know them well. You don't know the Scriptures. Because if you knew the Scriptures, you would know that even the Pentateuch teaches a resurrection. And in a minute, he's going to show them from the strangest of all passages that there is resurrection. But he says, the other thing you don't know is you don't know anything about the power of God. This all seems impossible to you. It's impossible to you that God could even raise the dead. It's impossible to you that people could live after life. Spirits are impossible to you. Angels are impossible. You know why? Because you don't believe in the power of God. You've got two problems. They're closely joined together. You don't understand the Scriptures, and therefore you don't understand the power of God. By the way, the Scriptures imply very clearly that after death, physical death, the soul lives on. Don't you remember what God said to Moses back in Exodus 3 in the burning bush incident? I am, I couldn't help but think as Pastor Sam drew our attention this morning, to the I am of God. His self-existence, His eternal existence, His unchanging existence. But here, we are reminded that this ever-living God is a covenant-keeping God, and He is, He is, present tense, He is the God of Abraham. Well, how can you be the God of Abraham if He's gone, He's dead, and there's no more life, and there's no more future for Him? He didn't say, I was the God of Abraham when he was alive, but like the, like the Sadducees, I don't think anything happens after death, so that's sort of a historic thing. No! Abraham was in the presence of God. And he, like the rest of all of the saints, old and new, await the second coming of Christ and the rest, restoration of all things and the, and the great resurrection. It implies the resurrection. He made promises to the patriarchs that hadn't yet been realized. They were looking for a city yet. They were waiting for glorification in the renewed earth. The Old Testament clearly implies in that passage the resurrection and explicitly teaches it in other places. The answer to their dilemma is very simple. Sorry guys, you don't understand the Scriptures and you don't understand the power of God, 
If you did, you wouldn't have a problem. And so their conclusion was refuted, and they were undone again. And apparently they too were stymied because we read of nothing happening. They were just like speechless. Okay, there's the three groups. Intense, intense confrontation, deep hatred and malice. The religious leaders do not want Christ to continue to gain a following. First the Sanhedrin meets with them. Then the Pharisees and the Herodians meet with them. Then the Sadducees meet with them. Nobody can begin to unravel the perfect wisdom and knowledge of our Savior. And I want now to conclude this sermon with just a couple of applications. Actually, three. The first one is this. I just want to say this as an encouragement, especially to any young people. There could be some adults here, though, that are struggling with skepticism. Skepticism, doubt. There are very few honest skeptics in the world. Very few. Perhaps it's debatable as to whether or not you can be an honest skeptic. But let me just assume for a moment that you can seriously wrestle with some difficult questions that you would like to settle in your mind that aren't a part of your subduing truth in unrighteousness. Most skepticism is born out of that Romans 1.18 thing. I just don't want to know. that. I'm, I don't believe in that. I know why you don't believe in that, because if you did believe that, you can't do what you want to do and what you are doing. I'm not talking about that, but if you have an honest question of skepticism, just to encourage you, I promise you, I promise you, you will find satisfying answers in the Word of God and in the power of God. So many dilemmas. Well, how can that be? Anything can be with God. That's how it can be. How can someone never have a beginning? How can someone create something out of nothing? Only if they're God. But if they are God, He can and He did. And if we will humble ourselves and bow down before His own revelation and recognize not only His sovereignty and His eternality and His omniscience and His omnipotence, but recognize His power, we will find that our problems sort of vanish. They just like, well, really, that isn't a problem, is it? I mean, how can a virgin conceive? How can an egg be fertilized without a sperm? It's no problem with God. None at all. He's a creator. You don't know the Scriptures. You don't know the power of God. But when you know the Scriptures and the power of God, it solves a thousand dilemmas. But it's going to take humility to bow down before that revelation. The unbelief that many of us struggle with is not really, after all, an intellectual problem. The unbelieving religious leaders didn't believe not because they could not. They didn't believe because they would not. And I want to say this to you before I leave this point. The, uh, the I will not attitude that we sometimes struggle with finds lying at the bottom of it. And, and I... Uh, Excuse me, let me reverse this to make this really clear. I think I was going to make it clear, but I think I can make it clearer. The attitude of I cannot actually rests upon I will not. And if we humble ourselves before God, we can believe things that otherwise we so struggle. Number two, though the parable in chapter 12, verses 1 through 12, refers primarily to God's judgment upon ethnic national Israel and His gracious formation of a new nation, a new Israel, to His bringing of an end of the old covenant, His establishing of a new and better covenant. There still are several underlying spiritual principles that can legitimately be applied to us. To us, let's not just entirely make this about the nation of Israel. Let's see behind the principle. And even with regard to us, God has made wonderful provisions for our salvation in His Son. Unbelief remains a very dangerous, damning sin 
the wickedness of rejecting God's servants and the true preaching of His Word is dangerous. God still expects fruit from those to whom He gives many privileges. And He is determined eventually to judge us based upon our fruitfulness. And we ought to still hear God say to us what I read from Isaiah 5. Sometimes just listen to your conscience say these words. They're God's words. What more? What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? We are responsible, dear ones, for the blessings and the privileges that God gives us. And finally, finally, and this I think is the most significant thing, the appearance of failure and defeat on the part of the landowner losing his own son to death is merely that, just an appearance. I've already made this point, but I underscore it now. The landowner destroyed the tenants and gave the vineyard to others. The others are us, the church, made up of Gentile believers as well as Jewish believers. Together we are the new Israel. Theologically speaking, now none of this would have been possible. This is what I want you to catch. None of this would have been possible apart from the death of the owner's son. He, in fact, came to be killed by the tenants. You hear what I'm saying? There's a part of this attitude on, the, on God that just break our hearts. He would send His own Son. But He knew. He sent His Son to die in terms of the Gospel. I want you to imagine the story of the parable taking a different turn. I want you to imagine the Son coming to the tenants. Or I want you to imagine Jesus, God's final prophet, coming to the nation of Israel with His message and calling them to repentance and them coming to repentance. Ultimately, what good would have come from that? Ultimately. Well, you say, they would have come back under the favor and the blessing of God. That's right. But what about their sins? What about our sins? That's why we, we say to people, don't just talk about, I asked Jesus to come into my heart and now that solves my problem. No. Jesus in your heart doesn't pay for your sins. If Christ regenerated you from this point on, let's just assume you're unconverted, and today you're born again, and just imagine with me that you are enabled, which is utterly impossible to live a perfect life from this day until the day you die, and you don't die until you're 100. No more sins, and you die at 100. That'd be wonderful. But it isn't going to pay for your sins. What are you going to do about your sins? We need an atonement. And I'm just saying to you, though it seems like defeat for the son to have come and been killed and thrown out of the vineyard, it was the plan of God all along. And our being a part of this new nation was rooted in and grounded upon that atonement. There could be no such citizenship. The stone had to be rejected in order to become the cornerstone. And so in the same parable, Jesus can picture Himself almost in one breath as being killed and thrown over the wall and in the same breath as becoming the, the formerly rejected cornerstone, uh, the stone that becomes the cornerstone. Because He knew what was going to happen. He knew that He wasn't merely going to be crucified, but that He was going to be raised from the dead, and that he was going to perfectly satisfy the wrath of God for his people, and that there would be grounds for a new nation and for a new temple. You see, there's great victory in the owner's son being killed. And that is our hope. And I leave you then with this question. You're there in the temple... And you're walking around with Jesus. You're there when the Sanhedrin, the representatives of the Sanhedrin come. And you're amazed. And you're there when the Pharisees and the Herodians come. 
and you marvel. And you're there when the Sadducees go away, just defeated and confused. This is what I want to know. Who do you see in Jesus? They didn't see who he was. They didn't have to see him as God to begin with. They just needed to see him as a true man of God and listen to his message and submit to it. And they would have been able to see who he was eventually. Who do you see in Jesus Christ? That's the question. Is he just your hero who can out-argue his opponents? Or is he the beloved son who was sent to be killed by the tenants so that the vineyard could go on and be given to another people. He is our only hope, dear ones. And I recommend him to you this morning, unqualified. Flee to Jesus and have your sins paid for. He's the perfect atonement. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the record that Mark gave us by the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, thank you for who you are. You are who you are. And you came to this earth on a mission to redeem us. And we thank you that you were willing and even desirous to be sent by your Father so that you might die on our behalf. Oh, we thank you for making us members of a different kingdom, of a different nation. Lord, be gracious to any who are with unbelief today. Help us to see our unbelief for what it is and hate it and repent of it. And to flee to the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.